Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. The gift of being together in person once again. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and fill this place, fill each one of us, and guide our time, our study together of your word. So we pray, God, that the words of sacred scripture would illuminate our hearts and minds, would challenge us, and would help perfect in us a spirit and virtue of charity, of hope, of faith, and would drive us to deeper relationship with you as your disciples, Lord. And so we pray, God, for whatever is on our hearts tonight, whatever might be distracting us, whatever questions or worries we are bringing to you in prayer tonight, that your word would guide us, comfort us, answer us, and be a light in the midst of any darkness that we're experiencing. Help us to be free of any distractions over this next hour, and just allow us to receive and be illuminated uh, into a deeper understanding of your word. We pray for all those who could not be here tonight, all those who are on our minds and hearts, those we promise prayers to, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This evening we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. Luke 9, 51 to 62. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we are now in the season of ordinary time, all the way until the end of the liturgical year. So we'll be in ordinary time all the way till Advent. Ordinary time is not just meant to be ordinary, like plain. It's just an opportunity for us to experience God in the kind of ordinary, uh, routine parts of life. And so you can think of it as ordinary time is how we enter into daily life to see how God is making ordinary things extraordinary. And so for the next uh, several Sundays until the end of the liturgical year, we will only be in the Gospel of Luke, and we will be going sequentially through Luke in order all the way from this passage through the end of Luke. And we'll skip some certain parts, but we're really going to be covering the entire rest of Luke that we haven't really read thus far this liturgical year. So I want to remind you a few things about the Gospel of Luke before we read this passage. Luke was a physician. He was not one of the Twelve Apostles. He was a traveling companion of St. Paul. He, uh, his mother, I believe, was a Gentile and his father was a Jew or the other way around. He was half Jewish. And so he converted to the faith and he took a very analytical approach to go and going and interviewing all eyewitness accounts of everything that had happened in the life of Jesus, people who had seen it firsthand. And he writes this in the first few verses of the gospel to present them in an orderly way so that we will know that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, the promised Messiah. Okay? Some unique things about the Gospel of Luke, it's sometimes called the Gospel to Women or the Gospel to Gentiles. We have the most interactions between Jesus and women, Jesus and Gentiles, um, and there's some unique things to the Gospel of Luke, some of which we'll be reading uh, tonight and next week. And so um, that gives you just a little bit of an idea or reminder of who Luke was, why he's writing. He's writing to a Gentile audience, so you're not going to have a whole lot of description of kind of Old Testament Jewish events or customs. 
You're going to have a lot of the ministry to um, just the to all nations, to all people, and just what that requires, what it means to follow Jesus, and that that's a invitation for all of us. So we're going to read uh, from Luke nine, starting verse fifty one. This is the beginning of the central section of Luke, where it is on the way to Jerusalem. Okay, so Luke one through nine. It's just kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then uh, some of the things that he did, some of the miracles, and then these next 10 chapters, he's just continuously journeying toward Jerusalem. It's on the way there. And then in Luke 19, he gets to Jerusalem, and then we have just the final events of his life. So this big central section of Luke is just him on the way. So we're beginning that section tonight in Luke 9, 51. We're going to have two sections here. One about the hospitality, or rather inhospitality, of Jesus entering into Samaria. And then we'll have a little section about the would-be followers of Jesus. Okay, so read both those sections, Luke 9, 51 to 62. First time through, just get an idea for what is being said. So this is Jesus beginning his journey toward Jerusalem with the apostles. When the days for his being taken up were fulfilled... Jesus resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another he said, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But Jesus answered him, let the dead bury their dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. To him, Jesus said, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, first time through, you get a picture for what is being said here. Two little instances, Jesus not being received to Samaria, and then Jesus having some, what sound like pretty harsh words for people who aren't really ready to follow him. Uh, and there's obviously deeper meaning behind those things. But this time, this next time through, now you get a sense for what's being said. I invite you to just close your eyes or follow along and just try and focus only on the words as they're being read. And see if a particular word or phrase stands out to you individually, relates to something in your own life, resonates with you for whatever reason. Begin to kind of bring that to a prayer and reflection. Why is this standing out? What is the Lord trying to say to me through this particular word or phrase? Our second time through, we are in Luke chapter 9 in verse 51. When the days for his being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him 
because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But Jesus answered him, Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to my family at home. To him, Jesus said, No one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a longer passage and a lot of uh, difficult or sometimes confusing words. Uh, so I invite you to take a moment, think about those things that stood out to you, reflect on those with the people around you, share them. If you're on Zoom, feel free to do that in the chat. If you're watching us later on YouTube, please do that in the comments. But for us here, take about 10 minutes to share with those at your tables. All right. Glad many things are standing out. Um, so I know there's probably a lot of questions about the sections of the would-be followers of Jesus, um, and I want to get to that, but I think I want to provide some context first for um, what happens before that in Samaria and why it can inform why Jesus is talking the way that he is in this second section, okay? And in order to provide that context, we have to go back to the Old Testament and look at two figures, Elijah and Elisha, and you've been hearing about them in the readings at Daily Mass, and I believe in this past weekend, um, two of the first prophets in the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? So we go back to, you know, um, Abraham being called by God. He, he calls him to the promised land. They end up down in Egypt when Joseph, is, his brother, is sold into slavery. Uh, his brother sold him into slavery. They all come to Egypt. They're enslaved. Moses sets them free. They return to the promised land. They're ruled by some judges, and then eventually they have this big, great kingdom. King Saul rules for 40 years. King David rules for 40 years. King Solomon rules for 40 years. So they have this 120-year reign of this kingdom in Israel. And then in 930 BC, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, is not a very good king. He doesn't have very good leadership skills, and he kind of upsets some of the other figures um, and tribal leaders by being very um, proud and very obstinate. And so... There's 12 tribes of Israel, named for 12 sons of, of, um, of, of Jacob. Ten of those tribes move north, and Israel is now in civil war. There's a kingdom in the north called Israel, and there's a kingdom in the south called Judah. Okay, and so they're, they're, the whole books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you're going back and forth between the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and basically the whole lesson here is that the northern ten tribes their kings are all incredibly wicked, okay? They all turn away from God. They all worship false idols. Most of the prophets that God sends, including Elijah and Elisha, they're trying to go to the northern kingdom to tell them to knock it off. The southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah, 
Uh, in particular, the tribe of Benjamin also is sustained. It's the second tribe there, but Judah is the main tribe. That's the uh, lineage through which the Messiah is supposed to come. That's where we trace Jesus's birth line is through the tribe of Judah. Okay. Now they have some pretty bad kings in the south, but some of them are decent. Some of them try and you know turn back to the Lord. But eventually, there's consequences to these actions. Okay. So God sends these prophets to tell people, if you do not turn from your ways, you are going to be wiped out. Okay, so I drew a little map here. This is Israel. My attempt at Israel. This is the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea, and this over here is the Mediterranean. Okay, this dotted line is kind of the informal separation between the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And these little dots here are the capitals. So Jerusalem is right here. And then up here, the dot is Samaria. That was the city of Samaria, but the whole region ends up being called Samaria. And um, they have a problem that if we're going to split, people are going to want to go back to the temple. When they see the temple in all its glory, they're going to want to go back down and be part of the southern kingdom. So they end up setting up all these false altars of worship. That's how they get in trouble. And that's why Elijah and Elisha come to tell them, you guys got to knock it off. You're going to get wiped out. Okay. In the year 722 BC, the Assyrian kingdom comes, completely wipes out the northern kingdom. That's why they're called the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, if you've ever heard that phrase before. Okay? And then later on, in five, uh, 587, from, from 605 to 587 BC, the southern kingdom is brought into exile by the Babylonian kingdom. Okay? So they get to last for another 150 years. Okay? So history is important because when they come back, when the southern kingdom comes back, Something very um, interesting happens right before they leave. And this is in 2 Kings chapter 17. And it says the king of Assyria, that was the king who wiped out the northern kingdom. He brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Abba, Hamath, and Sepharvaim. Not important where those places are. And he settles them in their cities of Samaria in place of the Israelites. There's these five kingdoms of people that they come and import into Israel, and they intermarry with the Jews who are still there. This is why the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah do not like to associate with the Jews of the north in Samaria, because they intermarried, they turned away from God, and they're considered kind of a despicable race of Jewish people. They turned away from God. This is why there's such contention between them, okay? Secondly is because when the kingdom of Judah is able to come back from, from exile, they come back and they try and build a temple. And this is in Ezra chapter 4. They try and build a temple. This guy named Zerubbabel, great name if you're looking for a baby name in the future, Zerubbabel, um, is building the temple, the temple that was destroyed, Solomon's temple. He's trying to build a second temple. And the Samaritans come and they say, hey, can we help you? Because they don't have a place to worship anymore either. So they say, um, they hear that the exiles are building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached him and the heads of the houses. They said, let us build with you, for we seek your God just as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of the king of Assyria who brought us here. And what Zerubbabel does is he says, no, go away. We don't need your help. We don't want you here. And so what they end up doing is they build their own temple and place of worship on this little mountain right by Samaria called Mount Gerizim. And it's referenced in uh, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well when she's talking about where they worship in Samaria. She's in Samaria, okay? So it's important to kind of know that whole political background, why 
they're so harsh toward Jesus when he enters Samaria and why there was this kind of cultural stigma we don't associate. Because we now have these two different places of worship, two completely different societies, and really two completely different cultures. I mean, the northern kingdom completely intermarried with these foreign, um, foreign nations. And the southern kingdom sees themselves as this kind of pure race of Judaism who, with them, have the line of the Messiah. And they don't want to spoil that. They've already lost enough. And they don't want to get punished by God for kind of getting in bed with the enemy, you could say, or like making unions with people who are practicing idolatry, okay? Um, so that's one piece of context. The second is a little uh, easier, and that has to do with Elijah and Elisha, as I mentioned. Um, Elijah, he was a prophet that came to preach against the northern kingdom, and all this idolatry is going on. You might remember this story where there's 450 prophets of Baal, and there's just Elijah there, and he says, you make a sacrifice on your altar, I'll make a sacrifice on my altar, and you pray to your God, and I'll pray to my God, and whoever brings down fire from heaven, that's the true God. And all the prophets of Baal, they spent all day dancing around, bleeding themselves, trying to get the attention of Baal, and Elijah's like, I wonder if he's sleeping, or maybe he's busy. He's like super sarcastic, but it's hilarious. Um, and then, when it's his turn, he pours like gallons of water on his altar, just to like lay it on thick, just to be like, you guys, just you think you had it difficult. And then he just prays a simple prayer to the one true God, and the whole altar is consumed with fire. And then, everyone knows that the one true God is the true God, and then Elijah slaughters all of these 450 idolatrous priests. Yeah, there's some pretty intense stuff in the Old Testament. Um, so, he does that, he really irritates the, uh, the king and the queen at the time. He goes off into hiding, and while he's um, kind of out ministering, he calls Elisha, who's going to succeed him. And this is what happens in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah set out and came upon Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He was following the 12th. Okay, so the 12 yoke of oxen represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He's following the 12th, meaning the one faithful, the last one, the tribe of Judah. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak on Elisha, which is a, basically an Old Testament way of saying, come follow me. Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. Sound familiar? And I will follow you. So Elijah answers, Go back. What have I done to you? He basically says, You don't have any commitment to me. Go ahead. Fine. You don't, if you don't want to follow me, you don't have to follow me. So what does Elisha do? He doesn't go back and kiss his mother and his father. He leaves Elijah. He takes the yoke of oxen. He slaughters them. And he uses the plowing equipment for fuel to boil their flesh, and he gives it to the people to eat. Then he left and followed Elijah to serve him. So Elisha decides he wants to follow Elijah. He detaches himself from absolutely everything, sacrifices it all, gives it away, and goes and he follows Elijah. Okay? And then one other thing of context, and this is when um, Elijah takes over for, Elisha takes over for Elijah. Elijah is assumed into heaven. So they cross over the Jordan. Uh, he takes his jacket or his mantle off. He rolls it up. The Jordan River splits in two, just like Moses and Joshua. And then he says, whatever you want from me, Elisha, I'll give it to you. And he says, give me a double portion of your spirit. Basically, pour out your spirit on me. And he says, if you see me taken up, then your wish will be granted. And so he sees him taken up. A fiery chariot comes and assumes Elijah into heaven. And he takes on Elijah's mantle and he strikes the water, and he divides and crosses over. People recognize that he now is the one true prophet. 
Okay, he promises this kind of spirit to come. Elisha takes over for him, um, and a bunch of other crazy cool stuff happens to Elisha as well. But that provides a little bit of context for the things that we're going to be talking about in this passage. So, all that being said, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Greg. It seems like there's a, there's a kind of a difference between the Sumerians that <clears throat> refused to allow Jesus to come in and stay there. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus' disciples basically want to fry their ass. Yeah, <laughs> don't want to call down fire, just like Elijah did, right? I know. And Jesus rebukes them for wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. But two people with very valid reasons after that are very polite to him. He tells them basically get lost. Mm -hmm. So I don't... Between the two, I don't understand. Yeah. So what Jesus is doing in this first passage is he's trying to show that he's trying to get rid of this division. Okay? So everything that happened before with the south against the north, north against the south, this contention between these cultures, Jesus' intention is not for his mission as Messiah to come to only the Jewish people, but to the entire world. And so there you see the reason why James and John here have been nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. You know, like, they just, like, can we just call down fire from heaven? Like, old school Elijah and Elisha. And this is the area where Elijah and Elisha ministered, was the area of Samaria. That's where they were both from. They ministered to that northern kingdom. So they're trying to get in this spirit of this kind of prophetic Old Testament glorious days of renewal and reform. And so Jesus, he rebukes them. Not because necessarily their intention is bad, but because he's not about to bring about further division. He doesn't want to do that. Recognize the passage doesn't say that they reject Jesus because he was the Messiah. It says they reject Jesus because his destination was Jerusalem. Remember that difference in worship? They worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem where the temple is. And because they find out that Jesus is going there, they have this moment of thinking like, well, if he's the Messiah, if he's going to Jerusalem, then he's not our Messiah. He's not with us. If he's not with us, then he's against us. And Jesus want, doesn't want to further stoke that division. He came to reunify the 12 tribes, which is why he called how many apostles? 12. Okay, very symbolic, very intentional by Jesus to be able to show that he is restoring what was broken and came apart in the Old Testament under Moses, under Elijah. He's coming as a new, greater Moses, a new, greater Elijah to fulfill, recreate, and reunify all Israelites, the entire world, around worship of the one true God. Okay, so he doesn't want to bring about further division among the people. But when it comes to the commitment that God is asking for us of worship, regardless of who you are, Jesus then gets very serious. And then he recognizes, he encourages us to recognize that in order to follow him, we must let go. We must be able to detach. I was listening to something today that said, um, the, number, the source of all unhappiness is one thing. Any, any reason why anyone is unhappy, the source is one thing, and that is attachment. That we are attached to certain things, people, or ideas of how things should work, how our life should go. And because things don't work out the way that we thought they did, or we're too attached to our own plans, our own control, our own thoughts of how life should be, we become unhappy as a response to that. And so this passage about following Jesus is entirely about letting go. 
Letting go of the division from before, letting go of the past, realize Jesus is coming to recreate, do something new, transform. And then when it comes to our own personal lives following him, to let go of the things that are holding us back from following him completely. So that's how these two things are kind of tied in, if that answers your question. Yes, Bruce. Did this then proceed, uh, precede the uh, meeting of the Samaritan woman at the well? Um, we don't know, because that only occurs in, in the Gospel of John, and it's early in the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 4. Um, and he is, he's, at, at that time, Jesus is passing through Samaria to go north to Galilee. In this section, in Luke, even though we don't necessarily know where they would fit, because John is a very different sequence of events, he's now coming south from Galilee through Samaria, and he spends a lot of time kind of circling around Samaria and southern Galilee before he ends up in Jerusalem. Um, but I think very likely um, the situation with the, the woman at the well probably happened. Well, he reveals himself to her first as Messiah. So I think John is trying to present that that happened early on as he was going north. So this would have happened after that, I would assume. And what's interesting about that story in the Gospel of, of John is that, remember Jesus says, like, um, you've been married five times, and the husband you're married to, or the person you're living with now is not your husband. Um, a lot of biblical commentators think that those five kings, those five nations that came over to intermarry, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you're a Samaritan. You've been married, meaning you've been committed to five different nations of idolatrous worship, and who you're worshiping now is not the one true God. They're kind of using it as biblical commentators say that this could be also an analogy for all of the idolatry that had happened throughout the history of Samaria, all being represented in this one woman, who very likely also was committing adultery. But because she's talking about worship, and she brings up Mount Gerizim, and she brings, out, brings up this division, it's very likely that Jesus is speaking to her kind of also about the history of the Samaritan people, which is also just a really cool, you know, biblical fact. Uh, yeah. Matt? Aren't most of the apostles fishermen named out in the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So, so Capernaum, Bethsaida, that area. So is Samaria between? The yes. Okay. Yeah, so sorry. So in the Old Testament, this is kind of the division. At the time of Jesus... This down here is um, Judea. This central section is Samaria. All of this over here is called Perea, and there's an area here called the Decapolis, and then this up here is called Galilee. So those are all the regions you'll hear about. And then if you ever hear about like the Edomites, or the area of Edom, or Seir, or the Egyptians, or the Philistines, Philistia is right here, all of those kind of foreign kingdoms are around to the east and south. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, you hear about them, they're port cities up here. So they kind of, all these foreign kingdoms surround um, Israel. But Galilee is up here at the time of Jesus, Galilee, Samaria, Judea. So in order to avoid going through Samaria, even though it would be much longer, uh, Jewish people would, during pilgrimage, they would come, they would cross the Jordan River, and they'd go through Perea, and then they'd come back over. they completely avoid Samaria, even though it was like so much quicker to go straight through which is why Jesus is like, I'm just going to do it. Like, and then he accomplishes some very important things along the way with the woman at the well and other things like that. But, yeah? What were the two places of worship you had mentioned? So um, in, in Jerusalem, it was the temple on Mount Zion, and then Mount Gerizim 
Um, you'll see it in John chapter 4 in the woman at the well. It's one of the few places it's mentioned. That's where they establish. They might also mention it in Ezra chapter 4 when they go off and build it. Uh, but it was a mountain right near Samaria uh, where they set up kind of an altar, um, pagan altar. Well, it wasn't a pagan altar. They were, act, they were sacrificing to God. Just it wasn't in the way that God asked them to worship. And so there was this kind of contention between them. You know, the Samaritans felt like we, we're still trying to hold on to the Old Testament laws of Moses. We're still trying to sacrifice but you won't let us go down to Jerusalem because of this division. And then the, the Jerusalem, people in Judea, Jews in the south, were like, well, you've intermarried. You're not worshiping in the one true you know, temple. So you've completely turned away from God. And then it just turned in this complete like hatred of each other over and over and over again throughout the years. Um, Vicki. I'm looking at this map. Um, is Nazareth in the north? So is that part of the reason that they didn't want to accept Jesus as the Messiah, since he wasn't part of the other two tribes, even though he's from the... Well, he's born in Bethlehem, which is in the south, and his lineage comes through the birth site of of one of his parents. So um, he still belongs to the tribe of Judah by his birth, um, and is born in the city of David, which is in the south. But where he lives is in Galilee, which in the very like kind of southwestern corner of Galilee before it becomes Samaria, which is Nazareth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Samaria reduces down to just that middle section by the time of Jesus. It's kind of like Laguna Woods in the middle of Laguna Hills. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No offense to people who live in Laguna Woods. Jesus loves you, and you are part of the the covenant. Greg. Did Jesus spend much time in Samaria proper? Um, he spends quite a bit of time throughout Samaria in these chapters, um, these on-the-way chapters that we have in the Gospel of Luke. As I was saying before, this is the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem, and the only thing really in between Galilee and Jerusalem is Samaria. So he does a lot of stuff in Samaria, and he has the most interactions with Gentiles in the Gospel of Luke than any other Gospel. Um, and a, a lot of that happens uh, in Samaria and in the region across the Jordan, Perea, uh, and the area of Decapolis, where a lot of Greek-speaking uh, Jews and Gentiles were. Yeah? This has nothing to do with it. Mean, sure. It's geographical. Is the Sea of Galilee fresh water or salt water? Uh, that's a good question. I believe it's fresh, but it becomes... The, the Dead Sea is incredibly salty. Yeah. Um, the Jordan River still fresh. Yes, yeah. And then as you get close, I think there's just a, like a large natural salt deposit in the sea, in the Dead Sea, um, once it goes south and, and feeds into the Dead Sea. So, um, but yeah, I believe the, the Sea of Galilee is fresh water. It is. Yeah, it is. There you go. Other questions or things that stood out to you? When he says yes. uh, that the dead, very Yes. Yes. Okay. So after this inhospitable reaction toward Jesus and him moving on, we have these series of phrases about the would-be followers of Jesus. And one of them, the second time, Jesus calls someone. He says, come follow me. Remember, that was the call of discipleship. The rabbi wanted someone to be their disciple. Usually the disciple would interview with the rabbi and he would say, come follow me. Jesus is different. He goes and seeks out his disciples. He goes and seeks out kind of the rejects, the, the lost those who've been oppressed or marginalized. So he goes out and he says to someone, come follow me. So to receive that, just for someone to say that to you, that would have been like so life-changing. 
that like a rabbi sees something in me that no one else has ever seen. But he has this attachment. He says, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Now, because that phrase doesn't make sense, let the dead bury their dead, like a dead person can't bury a dead person. We, we know that Jesus is speaking allegorically here. And what we believe he's saying is that let the spiritually dead bury their physically dead. Okay, let those who do not want to follow and who are attached to things, let them worry about that, that stuff. Let them bury the dead. There's also a lot of biblical scholars that show there's a lot of evidence contextually here that show that this uh, young man's father is probably not dead yet. He's still alive. And so what the son is saying, kind of along the lines of the story of the prodigal son, he's waiting for his father to die so he can get his inheritance, so he can be comfortable. So he can have his own land, so he can have some money, so he can have these things that make him feel comfortable. And then this yes of following Jesus will be less risky, right? It will be less scary. He'll have some maybe, you know, savings put away. He'll have, uh, you know, a fallback plan. And for the disciple of Jesus, there's no such thing as a fallback plan. Um, you know, how do you spell faith? R-I-S-K. Risk. That's what, that's what real faith takes. Stepping out with no assurance that you're going to land on level ground, that you're going to have any idea of what you're doing or where you're going, but solid confidence in the fact that you know God does. That you know God does. I was listening to a podcast today about three levels of faith. And uh, we, some of us never go beyond the first level, and that's transactional faith. That God, I believe if I do these things, that you're going to do these good things in my life. If I pray, if I go to Mass, if I go to confession, you are going to bless me. And then when eventually that doesn't work, because stuff happens regardless of if we're doing the right things or the wrong things, we might end up in the second level, which is this um, desperation. You ever have those moments of just like, God, I just need you to, to show up in my life. Like, help my unbelief, Lord. Like, I want to have faith, but I just, I need you right now. The last level is sometimes something we never get to, and that is just surrender, total surrender. Because in the first two, we're asking God for stuff in faith. We're saying, God, I've done these things, and so I'm expecting or asking for this. When we're in despair, we're saying, okay, God, it doesn't matter what I've done, but I'm still asking for something. When we get to surrender, then we're in a point where we're no longer asking for anything. We're just expecting that God is going to do what God is going to do. And it's going to be the best possible thing that could be done. And that journey can take a lifetime. And we cycle between it, but we, we all kind of tend to default backward to the more transactional. When we get comfortable, when we get more attached to things, you know, the, the, the more money you get, the more you worry about losing it, the more you worry about making more. The older you get, the bigger your family gets, you worry more about their health, where they are, how they're doing, if they're okay, et cetera, et cetera. And so we tend to revert back instead of, you know, diving forward or stepping up into deeper surrender. And that's really the key of what, what Jesus is asking here. If you want to be a disciple, your yes needs to be unconditional. It needs to be unconditional. It doesn't mean that God is going to take everything away. Okay? It doesn't mean that God is going to take everything away. In fact, God is always going to bring abundant blessing. But it does mean that we are required to not be attached to any of it. It's the simple gesture, I make this analogy all the time, of going from here to here. Saying, Lord, I'm no longer going to hold on to these things and saying, this is my plan, this is what I want, this is what I expect, this is what I hope my life will look like, and just say, all right, God, here. 
And he may take some things, and he may put some new things there, and he may just rearrange some stuff. But that journey and keeping our hands open and surrender and saying, my life, Lord, whatever it looks like is yours. That's the type of faith Jesus is expecting here. And all of these are examples of people responding to a call from Jesus who has some type of expectation or attachment that is going to that has some kind of condition. And some kind of condition. This first person, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus, knowing something about him or based on the context, is recognizing this guy thinks that he might be signing up for like the glorious days of you know following the Messiah into victory. And you're gonna stay in five-star hotels and like, you know, you're gonna be bringing down Roman opposition, and this is gonna be we're gonna be the most popular people in the Holy Land. He's saying, no, you're, you're not going to have any place that you call home. You're going to be completely detached. Let me go first and bury my father. No, like, if you're going to say yes to this, like, you can't wait for the comfortable times and when it's easy to say yes, when it's more convenient. Jesus is calling right now. And then, lastly, let me go first and say farewell to my family. This was the response of Alicia, Remember? And to him, Jesus says, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what is left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, the way you would drive a plow at this time is you would have one hand on the plow, and the other hand would be controlling the oxen. Okay, and so if you're looking behind, you're going, you're, you're, uh, the divot you're making in the ground with the plow is going to not be straight. And this is a time of, like, limited technology. You can't undo that. And so there's a lot of stories in, like, rabbinical literature of, like, you know, um, absent-minded farmers who are made fun of because their lines aren't straight, because they actually, like, weren't paying attention. Like, it's just kind of like you become the butt of a joke, like, oh, there's, there's Frank again, there's those crooked plow lines, like, come on, get it together. Because you see it the entire harvest, like, it's obvious that, like, they didn't do it right, you know? So it's just kind of this shameful mentality that, like, you can't even, like, focus on getting just a line, your oxen to drive in the right direction. And so that's kind of, it's, Jesus is saying here, like, you need to be completely, totally focused on the mission at hand if you're going to follow me. This needs to be, like, the center of everything that you do, everything that you are, all that you want, all that you expect in life, your plans, like, need to be completely ordered around this central reality that I am your God and that I will provide everything that you need and that everything that you are attached to, you can let go of because I will provide something even better. That's like the best definition of heaven. So you ask someone, what, what do you think heaven is like? And they'll give you an example. And they're like, well, what do, you think it's, what do you think it's like? And the best definition is that but better. That but even better. Because we don't know. Like, we have no idea. So even if you come up with the absolute best interpretation of what heaven was, the actual best description we have of heaven is that but better. And so our, will our willingness to let go of things that we think will fulfill us, things that we're attached to, that's what is going to keep our eyes fixed on the journey toward heaven. But if we're looking over here and over here, Jesus is over here, but I've got all this comfortable stuff, I've got these other plans that I have, and I'm not sure they align, things are going to get complicated, lines are going to get crooked, and eventually we're going to realize we're going in a totally different direction. That's why Jesus is responding what sounds very harshly, but he's using Old Testament analogies of people like Elijah and Elisha to show these powerful things that God was able to do to them because they left everything behind. Absolutely everything. In fact, there's these three, you know, he has these three interactions. There's this 
before this, the story I read about Elijah and Elisha, where Elisha witnesses Elijah being taken up, Elijah actually tells Elisha, stay here. And he tells him it three times. And Elisha's response every time is, wherever you go, I am coming with you. Wherever you go, I am coming with you. Complete dedication. And recognize there's three interactions here that end with an example that points exactly to Elisha. Jesus is, any Jewish person listening to this would have known these stories of Elijah and Elisha, would have recognized that is what it takes. Because Jesus is not only this new Elijah figure, this new prophet, he's even greater. He's the son of God, he's the Messiah, the son of man, he calls himself from Daniel chapter 7, the one coming on the clouds with fire. It's going to take that much more of a commitment for a disciple to look at Jesus and say, wherever you're going, I am coming with you, no matter what happens. Other questions? Yeah. So it's the base issue for these people. Do you want to follow Jesus, the person, human person, or do you want to follow Jesus, the Son of God? If you get it, that it, he's the Son of God, then yeah, I'll drop everything and do, do it. Mm -hmm. He's God, I'll do it his way. But if they're not grasping fully who he is, then mm -hmm. they might not be so sure he can deliver. Yeah, I mean, you're getting at an interesting idea here, too, is um, how much knowledge plays into faith. Like, how much do we, like, do we, do we have to know a certain amount before we can take that risk and say yes? Do we have to know that Jesus, because it says in Scripture, with, uh, only by the Holy Spirit can anyone say that Jesus is Lord. And they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And this is why they're constantly confused about what Jesus is talking about. Constantly confused about him saying that he's going to suffer and die, calling himself all these things, constantly trying to call down fire or do these things that are totally against what he, they're just like, they're not getting it. But based on the little that they do know and that they have witnessed, they're continuing to say yes. They're continuing to say yes. So I think it's more so an idea of letting go, not even necessarily of who they thought Jesus was, but their expectations of life, of the Messiah, including who they thought Jesus was of anything that they owned or were attached to or hoped to aspire to, and recognizing that God is calling them to something greater. I don't think any of them in the moment, any of the 12 apostles in the moment, knowing that they had been called by who they believed to be the Messiah, I don't think any of them even recognized or knew, knew that Jesus would rise from the dead and prove to be the Son of God himself. That was not their idea of who the Messiah was. Remember, they thought it was going to be a political figure like King David to bring about the great Davidic kingdom again. So... Knowledge can only get you so far. And sometimes it can be an obstacle. Like, oh, I think I need to know more to have faith. No, eventually, you have to take that, that risk. You have to take that step of faith. You know? I, I still don't know everything there is to know about my wife. I'm constantly discovering new pieces of information about her. Some of them are very hilarious and entertaining. I won't share them with you because I think she's watching and I'm in trouble. But um, <laughs> she's not. Okay. She's sleeper. She's not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Later, Matt. Later. Yeah. No. Uh, but uh, it's true in any relationship, right? In any friendship, even in a job or in anything, you're constantly discovering. Even if you're completely in love, even if you're completely dedicated to or passionate about something or someone, you're still in this constant process of discovery. And so eventually, you have to recognize, I'm never going to know enough to know that this person is 1,000% perfect and everything will be 1,000% perfect in our life. I'm never going to have that assurance. I'm never going to know that or have that guarantee. And if I do, if I think I've realized that, then I've probably accepted some kind of vapid surface level version of what the reality is. 
Eventually, it takes that step in faith. Eventually, it takes us committing our lives to one another in front of an altar and saying, not that, oh, we've already got it all figured out, but there are no guarantees. So I commit myself to you in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, and anything that will come, because I don't have the knowledge to know what that's going to look like. But eventually, I want to take that risk. I want to take that step of faith. Yeah, Matt. Well, it's always kind of it's hard for me to wrap my head around is like we're supposed to be completely detached. It's like sometimes I think, wouldn't it be just better if we were just a hermit and we just worship and pray to God all day? And then, like, I think about relationships. It's like it's hard to wrap my head around like how we're supposed to be in communion with God, but also in communion with like our families and mm -hmm. relationships. So it's like, but how do we detach from that while still pursuing? Like relationships, I guess, with other yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, the catechism says no one can have faith alone. Faith is not an isolated act. That each one of us is a link in a great chain of believers. And that we only have faith because it was passed on to us. And we have faith that we're meant to pass on to other people. I'm paraphrase. Um, but that's paragraph 166. Um, and so I think, so for instance, for example, today, um, Hannah went to her first day of vacation Bible school at another church that her friend goes to. But her friend couldn't be there today. Her friend's going to be there all other 40, but it was like, and it's the first time we've ever like let Hannah go do something on her own without us. And so we didn't sleep at all last night. And <laughs> I'm imagining all these things. Like it, I was literally in, the, in bed last night, making a list on my phone of things that, situations I had to coach Hannah through over breakfast the next morning. Okay, if, if this happens, what do you do? And I, I work with like, okay, Hannah, what's my phone number? What's our address? Like she knows all this stuff. Like she's got like a protocol. Um, she's the most like radically equipped almost four-year-old in the world, probably. But, you know, we worry about these things. We worry. I have this attachment to her. And we belong. This, this, that's not a bad thing that God wants to take away from me. But where faith comes in is that I had to, this morning, I had to let her go. I had to entrust her to God and say, like, okay, God, whatever happens, even if something bad happens, if she gets hurt, if she gets injured, if she, you know, like, doesn't get along with people, if she's really emotional, if she misses us, if she's freaking out, I trust that you are with her and that you're going to bring something good out of this. And that's kind of the, the relationship between the two. It's not to take away. It's not to say that these things that God gives us in life are bad. It's that we can't attach ourselves to them in such a way that they take the place of our reliance on God, and we rely instead on them or our control of them to make us happy or feel fulfilled. I might feel like everything in my life is great because, like, all right, my family's all under control and my kids are listening. That's a, that's a great day, you know? But... Eventually, I'm going to come upon these life situations where I'm going to have to let my kids go, and I can't control what happens. I can't coach them through every situation. They're eventually going to have to be independent and think those things through on their own. Eventually, I'll be gone, and they won't have me to ask. They won't have me to coach. They won't have me to seek advice from. And that's the relationship between those two. We have these things that God has given us, and they're beautiful, and they're blessed, and we should enjoy them. But... If our desire to control them or find our happiness and fulfillment in them creates an attachment where we're seeking our fulfillment from those things instead of God, those are the things that God is saying. You need to be willing to give this up and give it to me. So giving it up doesn't mean it goes away. It means the ownership exchanges from me to God. It's his, not mine anymore. Hannah belongs to God. God has entrusted her to me and my wife for as many years as we get to be blessed by her. But she belongs to the Lord. And today I had to be reminded of that. I 
and be reminded of the fact that I needed to let go of the fact that I want to control everything and keep her in a safe bubble so she can be this beautiful, innocent, tiny child forever. But that's not going to happen. Yeah. I was just curious how she did. Oh, she did stellar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she was there. My wife stayed as long as she was allowed to stay. And then uh, she went over to Hannah and was like, okay, are you okay? I'm going to go. And Hannah was like, you can go now, mommy. <laughs> yeah. Levi's going to be told no. He's going to be a wreck. He'll be clinging to her leg for dear life, probably. But Hannah's like, she's she's a full-grown adult in her head. So, yeah. Yes. Maybe this is because I watched four episodes of Chosen today. I start seeing the gospel portrayed. Yes. Um, did Jesus give all the disciples a little bit of time to decide? Was he patient with the, I'm going to follow you decision? Or was it like that all the time? It seems from the gospels that it was instantaneous. It was in the moment. So he gave, he gave Thomas a little bit of leeway today. In, uh, what do you mean? Oh, in the, in the episode of The Chosen? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they also take creative liberties. You know, Thomas wasn't, in the scriptural account of the wedding of Cana, Thomas wasn't there. He wasn't a winemaker. He had some other background that we don't know or that, you know, is inferred to be because different. Because I hope God gives me a little patience, too. God. Yeah. In essence, um, it's a both and, right? In the moment, Jesus expects it to be instantaneous. But we're given our entire life to make that moment count, right? We're given from the moment we're born to the moment we die to make that decision. But when that decision is presented to us, are we willing to say yes? So it's both in an instant and in a lifetime. And I think it's more so that God knew where these individual people would be and knows where each individual one of us will be at that moment where we're presented with the choice. He knows that we've been given enough information, enough knowledge to be able to take that risk in faith if we use our free will to do so. If we trust enough to say, yes, Lord, all right, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do this scary thing. You know, when I decided to move away from my uh, degree in my studies and becoming a film composer and, you know, security and money and things I was very talented at that could really afford me a really great life and say, I think that I'm called to ministry, which is super lucrative, um, you know, so, uh, but really fulfilling, you know. Um, I think that's what God is calling me to do long term. It's not just kind of a job to be doing that I enjoy, that I have gifts for, but this is really the mission. That took a moment of faith, but it came at the exact right time. You know, this feeling of unease in my wife and I's life. We went to this behind the music concert with Matt Maher before he was very famous. And he broke down how he'd written some songs. There's been 200 people there. It was when the diocese first acquired the cathedral. So it was in the cultural center of the cathedral. And he just said something during him, him talking about his own faith that was about stepping out in faith. And on the drive home, I was like, you know what? I think we need to just do this. I think we need to stay where we are for a year. I need to keep ministering. We just need to see what happens. And then... I was going to. I was looking to move to LA, start my master's degree in film composition at Cal State Long Beach, a lot of other things, and all that just stopped because of that moment. And yet, I'm still given an entire lifetime to continue to make that choice. Do you think it's a single moment, or do you think you're given several moments? Oh, several for sure. I mean, we see the pivotal, like life-altering and history-altering moments in the lives of these men in Scripture, right? The apostles, but. How many other moments preceded those? You know, how many other moments of desperation, of faith, of seeking to seek God in synagogue school, to listen to their parents, to continue expecting the Messiah, to lead up to the fact that when the Messiah is presented with them, they don't just write him off and be like, you're crazy, dude. Like, I don't know where you got all these fish, but like, we're just going to go cash in, you know? But to actually say like, all right, I've made enough yeses at this point 
to know how to make the right big yes when it comes. You know, it's like the story of the, the faithful stewards or the, the, the talents. Um, you know, you've been faithful in small matters, so I'll entrust you large responsibilities. Come and share in your master's joy. There's a theologian, a Protestant theologian named Dallas Willard, and he was once asked, um, how does someone become a saint? And he said, do the next right thing. It's not a lyric from Frozen. It became a lyric from Frozen, but it came from him. Do the next right thing. And I think when you do that enough in those moments, then when the big moment comes, it's easier to say yes. But it's not all dependent on one singular moment. And if you miss it, you're like, you know, screwed. You're going straight to hell. You know, like, no, it's, you're constantly given these moments. We just have a window into these very pivotal ones and these specific men in salvation history. And we can read about them in Scripture. And it's a good inspiration for us now that we're, our time is up, to think about our pivotal moments. When have we made those decisions about faith? When have we made those commitments to Jesus? Be reminded of those times God has worked in our life. And maybe if you haven't yet, or maybe it's been a while, to spend some time in prayer this week and say, Lord, like, I want to follow you. Like, I want to do what you want me to do with, with my life. And it's never too late or too early to continue making that decision. And it's not a once and for all. We need to keep choosing that every single day. But having one powerful, pivotal moment in prayer, if it's been a while, to just say, like, okay, God, like, what do you want of me? Like, what are your plans for my life? Because I'm still here. You haven't called me home to heaven yet, so that means you still have a job for me. You still have a purpose for me. Despite my brokenness, my sin, my confusion, my attachments, you want to choose me. You want to work through me. You're saying, come follow me. So let me take my hands off the plow. Help me identify what those things are in my life. Help me follow you. Because from all of our experience collectively in the room, but I can say in my own life, anytime we make that decision, it always results in abundant blessings. They may come in very unexpected ways and lead us to places we did not expect. And it might be a bumpy road along the way, but God always brings good. Somewhere along the line, he always brings good. And you can look back and be like, oh, I see what you were doing now. I didn't at the time, but I see it now. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. We pray that it would inspire each one of us to reflect on the things that we are too attached to, the things and people we seek fulfillment from other than you. And this week, to just practice the art of letting go, detaching ourselves from the things that do not lead us to you, that do not bring us lasting joy, and to consider how we have really fully surrendered, if we've fully surrendered to you in faith. Is our faith transactional? Does it spike only in times of desperation? Or is our faith a constant act of surrender to your will, regardless of what happens? Because when we can get there, we will be people of real, lasting peace. And so help us, Lord. Help us be people of faithful surrender in all that we do. To not bring about division, but to seek our own undivided commitment to you each and every day. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.